0: Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, for context, we will read from the beginning and uh, look at verse 11 through 13 in particular. "'For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief.' By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of His power." to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places." Verse 11. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulation, tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Verse 11, this was in... According with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is that God gave to the Apostle Paul the task of preaching the mystery of Christ. We see in verse 4, he references that and is outlined in verse 6 of chapter 3. This is part of God's eternal and master plan. He says, I was given this task and this was according to God's eternal plan and purpose. You might in English, modern day contemporary English you say, I was destined for this. That's what Paul was given to, a divine destiny. He was walking in obedience to God's will and purpose for his life. See, the Greek more literally says this was a purpose of the ages. There's a picture here in the Greek, which we kind of lose in English, that all of God's working together is coming to this very moment in Paul's life. We often think that we're just side stories in God's greater plan of salvation for the world, of worship for His Son, Jesus Christ, but Paul didn't see it that way. He said that everything God has been working for from the beginning of time until now is working together for this purpose in this point in life. It's the purpose of the ages. And that's echoing back to chapter 1, verse 10, if you were with us last fall. He says that in the fullness of times, God will gather together all things in Jesus. So Jesus was that turning point, hence why we have our calendars, Gregorian calendar, around that date, around approximately the time of birth. It's when Jesus came, everything in history changed. He broke what was sin or a way for sin to be broken through his death, burial, and resurrection. And Paul says that I have been equally given this job to present that gospel to you Gentiles who were for so long kept out of worship with the Father. He says in chapter 2, verse 18, that you have that equal access. He says, I I just imagine Paul kind of saying, you know, I've been given by God's grace this blessing of a ministry. He said, but understand the importance, the impact of exactly what it is. Let's move on. Now, it should be abundantly clear at this point in time that God does not do anything on a whim. Not creation, not in sending His Son to die, not in future judgment of the earth, the angels, not in using Paul. All things revolve around His master plan that was set into motion long before we were born. In fact, long before Adam was even created. This plan in particular, this master plan of God, the the bigger picture, is that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs with the Jews, verse 6. He says, it has already been carried out. He carried out, past tense. Carried out in Christ Jesus. That part of the plan has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him that's in Christ Jesus we have that boldness and confident access chapter 2 verse 18 that he are, we already spoke on the fact of this unity is shown by the truth that the Jew and Gentile can now worship together collectively we have the same boldness the same access the same introduction is better the better english word against we have the same confidence before god because it has nothing to do with your nationality. It has nothing to do with your skin color. Amen. It has nothing to do with your ethnic identity. It has nothing to do with the way you look, talk, the way you were raised. It has nothing to do with the money that you have. Because it's all in Jesus. Jesus is that great equalizer which we've talked about. He's the great unifier. As I said a few weeks ago, there is no room in Christ Jesus for any sort of prejudice, whether male nor female, slave nor free, black nor white, Republican, Democrat, Rich, poor, we are all one body together in Christ Jesus. There is no exclusion in Christ Jesus. And either you are made into that new man or you are not truly in Christ. We have to recognize that we have not allowed the light of Christ, the truth of His Word, to get inside of us if we're still acting out in prejudice Divisions in the church have not always been between Jew and Gentile. The reformers just of a few centuries ago would speak about this disparity between the clergy and the laity. They were teaching of the priesthood of all believers, and they were insisting that we all have the same access to God, that you no longer have to go to a priest to confess your sins, you can go directly to God. Fortunately, today there's still much division in the church. There's divisions based on skin color. There's divisions based on Bible translations. Yes, that's true. There's divisions based on denomination, and other non-essential disagreements. We need to understand that division has always been a tactic of the enemy, of the devil. Division is from Satan, it's not from God. And and, and I don't want to go down this rabbit trail too far, but really, the thing, one of the great things that separates God Yahweh God from everything else is His unity in the three beings coming together. That is a very attribute of God is His triune triuness, And it's that unity which He desires for us to taste and experience and really extend to others as an evangelistic tool. Jesus prays that they may be one even as we are one, John chapter 17. He says, if they could experience the oneness that I have with you, Father, the whole world would be changed. Now, on the other hand, let's consider that the word devil comes from the Greek word diabolos, which can be translated to divide, to separate, or more literally, to throw against. Division is a tactic of the devil. And to the degree that the church is divided is to the degree that it, we are sinning, and it makes us ineffective as an evangel, as as bearers of the truth of the gospel of Christ to the world. Verse 13. Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations. Again, Paul being in prison when he wrote this letter. We see that in verse 1, chapter 1. He says, I don't want you to be discouraged for my sake because I'm still being used in God's eternal plan. God is using me in a way that couldn't be possible if I wasn't exactly where I am. And he wanted to remind the Ephesians and encourage them that God was still using him for good. We have this book of the Bible because Paul was in prison. I, I, we can speculate, it doesn't do us really any good to necessarily to do so, but Perhaps Paul would have gone to Ephesus directly and not have written this letter had he not been in jail. I know this epistle has been a blessing to me. He said, it's for your glory. See, Paul was being used in a greater way than he ever imagined. And we certainly all have this plan or this place in God's eternal master plan. I think sometimes we think, oh, well, you know, God just uses that person. I'm just going to pray for them. That's, you know, maybe that's my ministry. I'm just going to pray for that person because, you know, I'm, I'm not that good or skilled or talented. I don't have those gifts. But I want you to know that God wants to use each and every one of us. He has a plan for each and every one of us to advance His kingdom here on earth. We ought to work toward guarding against losing heart in the midst of tribulation. It's so easy when we say, God, I'm going to take a step forward for you and follow after your will. And then what happens? We get thrown in jail, right? How many of you suffer in jail for Christ? (laughs) Not yet. But Paul, in the midst of this chaos and what would look like tribulation and trial, he says, I'm right where I'm supposed to be. Why? How did he know that? because he knew that he was doing God's will. He got into that mess because he was listening to the Holy Spirit. So no matter what comes your way, as long as you are actively asking God, what do you want me to do? And you're being obedient to the Holy Spirit's leading, no matter where you end up, God is going to use it for good. For those that are called according to his purpose and love him, God will make good come out of that thing. Now we come to a new section in the of this chapter where Paul begins a sort of prayer. Some commentators believe Paul is hailing back to the end of verse 1. I have a, a long dash there at the end, which is implying a break in the New American Standard. Um, some suggest that the 2 through four, 13 of chapter 3 was like a parenthetical statement. Others believe that he is responding in prayer because of the tribulations, piggybacking directly off 13. Either way, um, it's a, a break, and so I want to read this new section together, 14 through the end of the chapter. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I told you that we're going to pick up the pace a little bit, but I don't think next week we're going to be going very far through those verses. <laughs> I love this section of Scripture. It was Jim Knoll, for those that know the name, one of his favorite passages of, all the, of the entire Bible. Verse 14, he says, for this reason, what's the reason? Well, I believe the basis of Paul's prayer was his knowledge of God's purpose, namely that he was chosen to bring and preach the mystery of salvation to the Gentiles. In other words, he was giving thanks because he was confident that he was in God's will. Here's a freebie for you. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We cannot pray effectively if we do not have insight into God's will for us. So many times we walk outside of God's plan and we ask him to fix our mistakes. But Paul was praying from a different perspective. He knew that he was in the will of God and he says, God, for this reason, all I can do is thank you. He didn't have to pray, God, what's your will? How often do we do that? God, I need, I need clarity. I need discernment. And that's okay to pray. Don't, give me, don't misunderstand me. But Paul was confident. He knew that God had led him into this. Why, why do we pray? What, what's the point of prayer? Does God change his plans based on the wisdom that you provide him? You know, well, I, I know you're planning to do this, God, but have you really considered that this might be a better idea? When you pray, God is never learning something that He didn't already know. Newsflash. Does prayer change things? Sure. Does God use prayer to bring His work to pass? Absolutely. Does God invite us to pray? Yes. Does God even command us to pray? Yes. Does the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplish or availeth much? Yes, it does. But these things do not change God's mind. Why? Because God in His infinite and perfect knowledge has not only never had to change His mind, according to Scripture, it is actually impossible for Him to change His mind. He is immutable. He cannot change. That also means His mind. Isaiah 46.10 says, Declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Now, we talked not that many weeks ago about the will of God and determining which type of will of God there is. There's many people that believe God has two different types of will. I do not. We went through Scripture. You can go back and listen to that sermon if you're interested. But for now, I just want to get you to understand that in this short lesson we have, the little bit of time we have left, God does not change His mind. He cannot change His thoughts. The extent that Gentiles were going to be included into the same access and salvation that the Jews had had, had always been set into motion, had already been set into motion long before the foundations of the earth had been laid. So when we pray, we ought to pray, His will be done, not that our wills be done. When we pray, we should get our thoughts in line with His will. Oh, how many times we miss the point of prayer. Try and change God's mind, get Him on board with our desires, our motives, our plans, the things that we deem necessary and good. Sometimes we pray that God would send someone to accomplish our will when we ought to be praying that we would accomplish His. We need to guard our hearts against fleshly motives and prayer. Learn here from the example of Paul. No matter how grim the situation may seem, when you know that you are being obedient to Christ, we have reason to give thanks for our tribulation. I was seriously ready this last spring to go to jail by disobeying governor's orders. And I knew because of what the Holy Spirit had spoken to me in my private time in seeking God that if I did that he would provide for me and my family. And that's the sort of resolve that we must have each and every day. God, I'm not doing this because I think it's a good idea. I'm doing this because I believe that you told me to. And when you step into that realm in faith and you operate, you're relying fully on the Holy Spirit to take you there. He will always provide you and deliver you and protect you and give you peace and comfort and joy on your journey. I can promise you that. It's the same we talked about just a couple weeks ago. We alluded to or referenced Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because I'm not going to bow down, O king. God's going to deliver us. But even if he does not, I will never bow down. They had resolve. They knew that God did not want them to do that. Back to the verse. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. I thought I'd take a minute to talk about body language in prayer. If you grew up in church as a kid, you probably know the three keys to a successful prayer. What are they? Bow your head, close your eyes, fold your hands, right? (laughs) We know that God can't hear us if we don't do those three things. And if you want to be really spiritual and get bonus points, you get on your knees. All right, joking aside, why do we get on our knees? Reverence. Solomon got on his knees, 1 Kings chapter 8, when he was dedicating the temple. Ezra prayed on his knees, Ezra chapter 9, verse 5. The psalmist called us to kneel. Psalm 95, 6, Daniel prayed on his knees, Daniel 6, people came to Jesus kneeling, Matthew 17, Matthew 20, Mark 1, even Jesus himself prayed on his knees, Luke 22, Stephen prayed on his knees, Acts 7, Peter prayed on his knees, Acts 9. The Bible has enough prayer to show us that it is not required, but it also has enough prayer while on the knees to show us that there must be something good about it. And what good does it do? Well, I believe, as Doug said, it is an outward expression of reverence. Now, on the flip side of the coin, you can do it to be showy, which of course was condemned by Jesus to the Pharisees and the scribes, both specifically in prayer, Luke 18 and Luke 20, respectively. But see, we understand, or hopefully understand, that God looks at the attitude of our heart. And sometimes... When we have our minds set on Him, we need our bodies to conform with what our spirit man is trying to speak out. And so we have this physical reaction to what we're trying to pray in the spiritual realm. And so we have this attitude in a physical world of reverence to God the Father. So whether you pray while you're bowing your head or getting on your knees, raising your hands, laying prostrate while it does not increase the effectiveness of prayer, it certainly should have a place within the lives of every believer. And this goes the same for exuberant worship. David doesn't say that those that aren't shy should worship on their knees. He says, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, Psalm 95.6. Why is this a, just a general statement of everyone should come and kneel? Because it's an act of reverence to, the worship, to, to Yahweh God who deserves it. And so we have to have this attitude within us. We need to pray and seek God in, in, with a reverence. But we also have times of worship where we have to express how our, our spirit man is feeling. Whether you stand and worship and you lift your hands, whether you've got to get a little bit of dance and wiggles out of your body, great, do it. You want to lay down, kiss the carpet? We clean them at least every year. You can do that. God looks at your heart and He says, That's somebody, that's somebody that's worshiping me. If you can't get down on your knees and you're worried you can't get back up, great, you just get on your knees the whole service. We'll get you afterwards. It's fine. We'll roll you over. It'll be fine, I promise. You know, we don't need to do it to be showy. That's not what God's after. But there are times where, you know, I would like us, honestly, as a body... We could be so in worship that we're not looking to our right or left. What is so and so going to think of me? Good or bad. I don't want to do something because so and so's looking at me. Oh, I'm going to. They're going to know I'm so spiritual. No, that's, that's arrogance. God hates it. But if we could just come with that attitude of reverence and being alone with God for an audience of one and expressing exactly how you would pray or worship to Him, not thinking about any circumstances around, there's certainly a place for that. And Paul sets the example here in 14. He says, I bow my knees before the Father. He's showing a reverence before Yahweh God. He's beginning to ask for some bold things over the Ephesians and he wants to come with the right and reverent attitude before he even gets into that place of asking God. He says in verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now there's debate whether or not this is referring to angels or whether or not this is referring to those that have gone before us. I don't have much to say on that matter because I don't think it really changes the application for as far as we're concerned other than to say that if Paul's referring to the angels, then know that we have fellowship with them for God's eternal purposes. And if it's talking more likely as I think that it's those that have gone before us, know that there is a spiritual connection between those that have passed out of this life and are waiting for us. They're cheering for us. We have that great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles and let us run the race that is set before us, right? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Nonetheless, what is clear here is that Whatever family we have, family on earth, there's that bond. There's, ask Italians, you know that bond. You don't mess with their, tam- their family, do you? They'll come get you. Vince used to always th- make threats to me, as if he had a family that was going to come down to Blacksburg and defend him, but I think he just liked me to take him out to pasta. Whatever family we have in church, you know that bond. When somebody in your fellowship hurts, you hurt, don't you? That family that you experience, those that have gone before, some of you get maybe a little bit closer, you're saying, Lord, I'm I'm getting real ready to go. You feel this drawing to your family, right? That family relationship we have comes from Father God. In Greek, it's patria. It's this fatherliness that actually draws us and knits us together because we have that same unity and fellowship in God. In other words, the relationships that we have are because we are called after His name. We are bearing that family name. My name's not Eric Willoughby, it's Eric Willoughby, Son of God. We're a family in a clan. We have a common ancestor that is Yahweh Himself. I'm going to have Steve come up and we're going to close out in prayer this morning. I don't know what your relationship with God is, but I don't want anyone to leave here without the opportunity to know Him personally. No matter what church you're from, and if you're visiting with us, you're looking for a church, that's great. We have fellowship, that same brotherhood and commonality because of God, as I was just sharing, but maybe that's going over your head and you're confused this morning. Well, I don't know what that means or I don't know how to have that sort of spiritual family. I want you to know this morning that God loves you and he sent his only son to die for you. And in his word it says, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you confess that with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved with every head bowed and eye closed. Not just for reverence this morning, but this is just a personal thing. I want to ask, if you have not made a prayer of salvation, a commitment of faith to follow after God, and you want to do that, you say, Pastor, I don't know where I'm going after I die. I don't have this family relationship in Christ Jesus. I want to offer that up this morning. It's a free gift from God to you. I don't have authority to give it, but God already gave it through His Son, and He wants you to know something. That even though we're all sinners, we're destined for hell because of that sin, He loved you so much that He gave His own Son to die on the cross and take that place for you. And He says, if you would just simply ask for forgiveness, and you believe that thing to be true, that God was sending his son and he raised him up from the dead. You never have to die. That means you don't go to hell. That means you escape death and you get to join the family of God. So let's pray this morning. If you've never done that, I want you just to repeat these words in your mind and your heart. Father, I'm a sinful person. I need your forgiveness. I love you and I confess my sins before you, and I ask that you would forgive me. Bring me into your family. I want to carry your name. I believe that you died for me and that you love me. Amen. And that's it. You're in the family. For those of us that have been following after Christ, I pray that as you leave from here, you leave boldly carrying that name of Yahweh God, proudly as a family member, looking for opportunities to share the goodness of God with the world. You know, there's a lot of hurt going on out there. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of people that are living in fear from one thing or another, but we have a truth. We have a hope in Christ Jesus, and he desires to set the captives free from their shackles, their bondage, And he wants to bless them with truth and grace and peace and comfort. Go in the grace of God this week. It's in Jesus' name we commission you forth.